Well, let's pray, and we will dig into Psalm 119. Lord, thank you for your word. What a treasure we have in the scriptures. And I pray that you would give me your heart and your wisdom and that I would be faithful to the word of God in what I say. And I pray that you would give us all responsive hearts. Lord, that you'd you'd, uh, defeat any lies that we have um, been victim to, that we've been um, succumbed by or deceived by. You'd set us free from those through the word today. And that we would see clearly who you are, especially when it comes to you allowing trials to come into our lives. So help us, Lord. Do a mighty work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk this morning from Psalm 119 about why God is good when he brings afflictions. And if you think about it, it's easy to believe that God is good when everything's going well in your life, right? Okay, so it's easy to believe God's good when you've just gotten the promotion or when your kids are all responsive and, you know, obeying everything you you ask them to do or when the doctor says you're healthy. At those times, it's easy to believe that God is good. But what about when things aren't going so well? What about when you get laid off or when you've had a terrible day with your kids Or if the doctor says it's cancer. In those kind of situations, what do we think about God? What do we believe about God at those times? And some of you are asking that question right now, I would guess, because you're going through some very difficult trials. You're going through some afflictions, some discouragement, some hard things have happened. And you're asking the question, is God good? to allow these trials to come my way. So some of you are asking that question right now. This is a current right now issue for you. The rest of us, every follower of Jesus, will have to wrestle with this question numerous times throughout our lives. You don't just raise this question once and then move on. This is a question we need to revisit again and again and again. Why is God good when he allows afflictions to come into our lives? That's the question we want to take a look at this morning. And the beautiful, the beautiful truth about God is his love for us in Jesus Christ. And this question, along with the other questions we have, he has not left us in the dark about this, but he has told us the answer for why we can understand and trust and believe and know that he's good when he allows afflictions to come into our lives. And one of those passages is the next passage in Psalm 119. So let's turn there. Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We want to bring a copy of the Bible to you so that you can study this passage with us. Have it open in front of you. I'm going to dig into this text of Scripture this morning. And in the Bibles we're passing out, Psalm 119 is on page 513. So Psalm 119, 65 through 72. I just read, I forget the guy's name, but about a an, an old saint, probably in the 1900s or 1800s, uh, who memorized all of Psalm 119. He encouraged everybody to do that. So think about it. Psalm 119 is so powerful. And let's take a look at what the author says in verses 65 through 72 about how we can believe God is good when he allows tribulations, afflictions, difficulties. Start with verse 65. You have dealt well 
with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So let's start off asking what trial, what affliction was the author facing? And he uses the word affliction, reflected twice. One's in verse 67. Check it out right there. Underline that word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So he's been afflicted. And then he says, uses the same word, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So he's been afflicted. He's had trials, difficulties, but but what, what affliction had God allowed to come to him? And he tells us, I think right there in verses 69 through 70, he says, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. So that's the affliction, at least the one that he mentions here, is that there were some insolent people. Now, the word insolent means um, no sense of right or wrong, brash, arrogance, no conscience, no moral compass, insolent people. And, and what the insolent had done was they had smeared him with lies. I was trying to get a picture of what that would be like. So imagine somebody standing in front of you with like a, a white tuxedo or a white... Uh, formal gown, okay, and these insolent people walk up and they they pick up mud from this puddle and just smear it all over. They're smearing you with this mud. So here's this person who was looking clean and shiny new and bright, and now they are looking in front of all the public as filthy and dirty and a mess. And that's what this author had experienced. We don't know what lies they were smearing him with, but he had these insolent people who were smearing him with lies. So just to help get in touch, imagine, for example, that you were a part of a team at work writing some software code, and it's done, and you ship it, and it turns out having a huge bug in it, and one of the guys on the team that has it out for you spreads the rumor that you wrote that. He called you on it. You said, no, it was fine. You wrote it. And everybody's talking about how incompetent you are, and you should have listened, and you're not very teachable, and she's really part of the team, and, and so you're being smeared with these lies that aren't true about you. Or another example, maybe, um, maybe you're a mom, and, and you're, you're at your child's school, there's other moms there, and you know, moms talk together and stuff, and, but one of the moms there is really jealous about you, and has been telling all the other moms about how insecure you are and how selfish you are, and how you spoil your kids, and that your kids went over there to play at your house, and they had a terrible time, and everybody's talking to you, you're getting smeared with lies. Okay, so can you get a little feel of what that would be like? You're being smeared with lies. These things are not true about you. 
Other people look at you now and they're seeing things that are falsehoods about you. Think of the, the pain of that and the difficulty of that and the sorrow of that and the sense of injustice and the, the problem that would cause. So that's the affliction this author is going through. Now, he knows that God is sovereign over everything. And he knows that God could have therefore stopped these insolent men from smearing him with lies. So he knows that God has allowed this smearing to happen. So how does he describe God's action of bringing him these afflictions? How does he describe God's action of allowing these trials to come? Does he think God has stopped loving him? Is he angry at God? Does he think God has forgotten him? No. Look at what he says in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Whoa. You've dealt well with me. You've been good to me, he says. And then notice that last line, according to your word. See, he's read certainly the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's read God's word. It's Old Testament, right? Author, Psalms. So he certainly has read the first five books of the Old Testament. And he knew that God had promised repeatedly throughout the first five books of the Old Testament to only do good for his people. For example, he'd read God's promise to Jacob in Genesis 32, 12. God says, I will surely do you good. He'd read what Joseph said about being sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember that story? That God meant it for good. He'd read what Moses said to his father-in-law, Numbers 10, 29, that God has promised good to Israel. So the author knew that in his word God has promised to do good for his people. Because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, sins can be forgiven, and God can do good for us. God has promised to only do good for his people. And the, and the author thinks about the afflictions that have come to him, and how God has allowed those to come to him, and he says, you have dealt well with your servants according to your word. Now, I just want to point out an implication of this. See, it's not that we have good parts in our lives that we thank God for, and then bad parts of our lives that God had nothing to do with that are just, that's the way the cookie crumbles, or that's because of the fall, or whatever. What the scriptures teach is that God is in sovereign control over both the good parts of our lives and the bad parts of our lives, the hard parts of our lives, but that even in those hard parts of our lives, even in the afflictions, even in the trials, God has allowed them to bring us great good. Great good is coming through every trial. How can that be? How can the author of the psalm say, you've dealt well with me? These insolent men have smeared me with lies. You could have stopped that. You chose not to. You have dealt well with your servants according to your word. How can he say that? How can afflictions be part of God's goodness? And in these verses, I saw two answers. One of them I'm going to illustrate with the story of William Carey. 
And the other I'm going to illustrate with a story uh, from Martin Luther's life. So the first reason is that God used afflictions to bring him back to the word of God. This is so interesting. Look at verse 67. He says, before I was afflicted, as before this trial came, before this smearing with lies came, I went astray. But now, now that I've been afflicted, after I've been afflicted, now I keep your word. The author of this psalm had a time in his life when he was going astray, consciously, intentionally going astray from God's word. We don't know exactly what that was. Maybe he uh, wasn't loving his wife. Maybe he was uh, jealous of somebody else's something, house, chariot, something. But in some way, maybe he was neglecting fellowship. We don't know, but in some way he was, he was departing. He'd gone astray from God's word. That's where he was at, astray from God's word. And so God allowed this affliction to come to him. God allowed these, these insolent men to smear him with lies. And this affliction humbled him before God. This affliction softened his heart towards God. It, so he saw, I've been turning away from God. What have I been doing? So the affliction woke him, kind of shook him up, woke him up, alerted him. So he turned back to God's word. The affliction woke him up so that he could see that he was astray from God's word. So he turned back. So God used afflictions in the psalmist's life to bring him back to God's word. William Carey experienced the same thing. William Carey was a missionary to the uh, eastern India area in the early 1800s. Carey was a brilliant linguist. He was a language guy, amazingly skilled. He spent years learning the different languages, many of them that were in that area of eastern India, and he had some manuscripts. He had a manuscript of the Bible translated into this language and this language and this language and this language, all ready to get published. He had these copies of the Bible translated. He had what was called a polyglot dictionary where he, I don't really understand all this, but he took the Sanskrit word and showed how in all the other languages that same word was being translated. So this this polyglot dictionary was going to be a great advantage to future Bible translators. And he had the He'd written a grammar of the Sikh language and the Telugu language. So he had these manuscripts ready to be published. Years of work. And one night he was away from his home out of town on missionary business and a fire broke out in his home. And all these manuscripts, the only copies of years and years and years of work were burned up. Devastating. Listen to what he said about that. He said, In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. And he got back to work and started over again. 
Now, this does not mean that every time a trial comes your way, it's because you've turned astray from God's word. Okay? Sometimes that's the case. I believe God will make that clear to you if that is the case. But that's not always the case. There's other reasons, and we'll get to that in the next point. But what we need to understand is that sometimes this is the reason. And in God's great goodness, he brings us afflictions, he brings us trials to humble us, to wake us up, to help us see, I've turned astray from God's word. So we turn back. And and that's what the psalmist had experienced. He'd experienced this, as he says in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, as a result of being afflicted, I keep your word. So he had turned away astray from God's word, which means, remember we talked about in past weeks, there's, there's God's ways, and then there's sinful ways, and God's ways are where God's presence is experienced. This is where we have sweet fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist had turned astray from God's ways, and so he was walking in this path here, which means he was not having, you know, sweet communion and fellowship with God through Jesus. You know what that's like. He had departed from that, and so he was not experiencing that sweet communion and that fellowship with the Lord. And so in great love and goodness, God allowed these trials to come to him, to humble him, to wake him up, and to turn him back to the Lord. And the reason that this is such a kindness from God, the reason Carrie saw God's love and goodness in it, and the reason if this is what is happening to you, you should see God's great love and goodness in this, is because what life is all about is sweet fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you have knowingly said, I'm, 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 I'm going to love money, or I'm going to steal from my boss, or I'm going to have an affair, or something else, and you're, you're walking in this path over here, you're not having sweet fellowship with God through Jesus. You're walking away from the Lord, and God loves you. He cares about you. And so he will bring afflictions to wake you up, to shake you up, to bring you back. What am I doing? I've lost God. I don't know the Lord Jesus anymore. And he'll wake you up so that you come back into this path and and you're home. And the, the treasure of knowing God in Jesus Christ is so valuable that it is worth whatever costs you had to incur to wake up and come back. Which is why the author said, the Lord has dealt well with me. He's, he's been good to me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So that's one reason that God brings afflictions to us. One way we can see God's goodness in the afflictions he brings to us. Now again, that is not always why it is. Uh, if you're anything like me, when, as soon as a trial comes, you think, I've been bad. I've sinned. And, you know, I'm never perfect, I'm never sinless, but I believe that God will make it clear to you if that's the reason why he's bringing the affliction. You'll know. It'll be obvious. It'll be clear, because you've departed from God's word in some clear way. But there's another reason why God brings afflictions. And that is that God used afflictions to teach him God's word. That's verse 71. 
He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? (laughs) Who would say that? Here's why. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So there's two different purposes, at least, that God has for afflictions. Sometimes afflictions bring us back to God's word. Other times afflictions teach us the meaning of God's word. Okay? So how do afflictions teach us the meaning of God's word? I mean, I'd rather just learn it without the afflictions, thank you. Can I just, you know, pray and open up the Bible and read? I mean, can I? And yes, you can. And you will learn lots of the meaning of God's word from praying and opening up the Bible and reading. But to really learn this book, we need afflictions. We need afflictions. Because afflictions can make us hungry for God's word. Afflictions can make us desperate to meet God. Afflictions can soften our hearts so we experience God's word. This is how Martin Luther describes it. Let me tell you about Martin Luther. Most of you know Martin Luther was a significant church leader in the 1500s, leader leader of the Protestant Reformation. By God's grace through Luther and other men, I mean, the church had departed from the gospel of Jesus Christ, tragically at that point. And God raised up men to study the scriptures, to see that this is not what's being taught in the churches. The church has lost the message of being saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And so Luther was one of many other leaders who helped the church come back to that, or started the Reformation, so that there was a branch of church started with that. And in one of John Piper's books... I was looking at this yesterday. He talks about how Martin Luther had three principles for studying the Bible. Three rules, he called them, for studying the Bible. Here's what Luther said. Get this up there. There it is, right there. Oh, no, it's coming. There it is. He says, I want you to know how to study theology the right way. I have practiced this method myself. Here you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout Psalm 119. This is where he got this. And run thus, oratio, which is Latin for prayer, meditatio, Latin for meditation, and tentatio, which is Latin for tribulation. Three principles for studying God's word. Prayer, meditation, tribulation. And why are these rules so important? He goes on. These rules teach you not only to know and understand but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. So that will happen when we pray, meditate, and experience tribulation. But but later he said that tribulation was the touchstone of these other rules. So why is affliction, tribulation so important? Here's the next quote. We got that? There it is. Here's why. As soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, will make a real theologian of you, and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. Now, let me read that sentence again. This is really important. As soon as God's word becomes known through you, The devil will afflict you, 
will make a real theologian of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. And he says, for I myself, I owe my Catholic opponents many thanks for so beating, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have turned me into a fairly good theologian, driving me to a goal I should never have reached. Do you see how this is happening for him? See, trials are painful. Trials break our hearts. Trials make us weep. And that's right. That's what they do. But with that, they can drive us to the word of God with more passion, with more desperation, with more hunger. I've got to meet the Lord. And when we seek God with that passion, that desperation, that hunger, God will meet us more powerfully than if we just open up to casually read. And so trials can deeply stir our hearts. So we say, God, I've got to meet you. I need you here. I need comfort. I need assurance. I need strength. Help me. And oh, that heart is just ready to be met by God in the word when we come to the word with that kind of passion. God will meet us powerfully in the word and then we will we will not just know in our heads, but we'll experience the things the Bible talks about. And so we won't just read about, but we will experience rivers of living water. Okay, And the peace that surpasses comprehension, Philippians 4, and the God of all comfort will experience the God of all comfort in, in the word, 2 Corinthians 1. We'll not just read about, but we'll know about the love of God being poured into our hearts. We'll not just read about, but we'll know the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay? And the Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we're children of God. And the list just goes on and on. And see, we will experience these things, and that will help us to understand them more than if we just read about them. Now, many of you have experienced this. And trials is one of the most powerful ways that we can. And so here's here's two different reasons now why the author saw God as good even though he'd allowed trials to come his way. One is because the trials brought him back to God's word when he'd been astray. And so he'd, he'd walked, gone off this path where he was not experiencing sweet fellowship with God because he was disobeying God. And through Christ, trusting Christ, anyway, this is how New Testament believers do it. We, we see Christ more clearly now than they did back then. So we, through trusting Christ, we're forgiven. We're assured of, of, of our salvation. We're back on track. And God makes his presence real to us. So that's one reason afflictions are good is because God uses them to bring us back to him when we've been astray from the word. And then the second reason is because God will teach us the word through these trials, as Luther said. Tentatio. God will teach us because our hearts are hungry and desperate for seeking him. Now, before I raise this next question, let's just let this just settle in our hearts a little bit and think about this and see what questions this raises. Is God good when he allows afflictions and trials to come our way? And the author of Psalm 119 would say, yes. Yes, he's good. This doesn't make the trials easy, by the way. Okay, We will weep knowing that God's goodness is in this trial, but oh, Father, this is hard. And you know what? When God in his goodness brings these trials to us, he's weeping very often as well. Because he knows the pain. He knows the hurt. He knows the difficulty. 
But he's not weeping without hope, and neither should we, because he has great good. He knows what this is going to do in our hearts. So he's weeping over the pain that this causes, but he's rejoicing over the great good that's going to come to us through it. So knowing that God's good in these trials doesn't mean they're easy. doesn't mean we're, we're all like always kind of chipper, always kind of, you know, happy. No, we're not. We're weeping much of the time. But our weeping has a, a baseline. There's a floor underneath it. God is good. This is painful. But God is good. And good is coming. I'm going to seek you in the word. Because you're going to meet me. So what questions does this raise? Most of it talk about affliction, but the source of that, maybe you can elaborate on discipline versus punishment. And you also talked about the devil being maybe an influence of that as well. He has a lot of questions. Let's see. So so the devil Luther mentions the devil as right? And uh, Satan can be involved in all kinds of our trials. But remember, Satan is under God's overall sovereignty. So Satan cannot do anything that God doesn't allow. So Satan's involvement in a trial does not take it out of the realm of being allowed by God to bring us great good. Okay? And then your discipline question. Can you phrase that as a question? When you're talking about affliction, should Christians view that as discipline? What does that mean? Or... Christians should never view uh, afflictions as punishment. Thank you. Okay. Why not? Why shouldn't we view trials that come our way as punishment from God? Yeah, Jesus was punished for all, all all the punishment that I deserve was poured out upon Jesus, so there's no punishment left for me. This is so important. So if you think you're being punished by God, that's devastating. Your punishment was all poured out upon Jesus. That's what we were celebrating with communion this morning. God never punishes those who are trusting Jesus Christ. Ever. 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 Okay? Now we go there. If you're anything like me, I, I go there way too often. I still do. But we should never go there. Okay? Because all the punishment was poured out upon Jesus. But discipline, loving, loving discipline, he does bring to us. Sean. Just to dovetail on that note, at the same time, we ought to be careful that we realize that in that discipline or our sin, there can be negative consequences. Mm-hmm. That you know, mm-hmm. the idea of you will reap what you sow. So if one is financially prudent, there's going to be consequences mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we will suffer through. That's right. Um, one thing that I was listening to yesterday, my uh, podcast, that I think may be helpful to bring into the picture is that if we view suffering, and his topic was talking about the nature of evil and the presence of evil in our world, but if we look at the presence of evil and suffering and difficulty in our life from the perspective of eternity, that helps bring in a very helpful essence in that we may think, even if it's something we suffer through a lifetime, you know, some long-term disease, or perhaps a child is struck with some disease and dies mm-hmm. early, mm. you know, painful, difficult things that yes. don't go away overnight. Or no, once. no. If we think upon it from a perspective of, gosh, life is short, you know, maybe I get 90 years, but man, 
you may take away half my life, and you know my father died at the age of you know 40 or something of that nature. But if we take the perspective of this life here on earth is but a small portion of the yes, life. yes, 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 goes on for eternity. Yes, that brings in a, a much more comforting aspect to the to the thought that God knows what He's doing with our life, and you know a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand years from now, we will look back upon it. Good. Good. Yeah. Eternity. So important to bring in. And let me just also mention in regard to negative consequences, which can come to us, but you're trusting Jesus Christ and he will help you and comfort you and be there with you in those negative consequences. He's not standing back, folding his arms, saying, you brought this on yourself. Deal with it. Not at all. Love, care, tenderness. Yeah. Other Josie. good question. Good question. Let's take a specific scenario. Let's take, um, I was thinking about Johnny Erickson this last week who uh, dove into a lake when she was, I think, 18 years old and broke her neck and has been paralyzed for the last 40 years. Okay? It's helpful to deal with a concrete situation. She loves Jesus. And and in her books, here's what this isn't a quote from her book, but she would answer and say, This was good of God because two reasons at least. One is the the increased nearness with God that she has experienced through this has made it absolutely worth it, she would say. And then secondly, the fact that he has called her to be able to be a paralyzed woman and to say to people Jesus Christ is infinitely worth this. And so the nearness to the Lord that she's experiencing and the high calling of being such a display of Jesus Christ as her treasure are deeply satisfying to her. And so is God is God selfish to give Johnny something that would be hard but that's going to bring her such a benefit? And the answer was, no, it's such a benefit that comes through that. So every trial that comes to those who are trusting Jesus Christ is a gift from God of great good in him. Knowing him and displaying him. So no, does that, are you satisfied with that? Oh, fair enough. As, as I'm sure we all will, and we will need to again and again and again. Anybody else have a thought on that? Is is God selfish to allow these trials? Joe, and then back to Scott, or Scott, and then up to Joe. Good, Scott. Yeah. Yes.
really got to be careful about not being like Jim's friends. And, yes. And really, it's really easy to kind of be, you know, just give somebody a, well, God's good, and so it's going to work it out for you. Mm, yeah. It's just going to drive on by. Yes, know? don't do that. <laughs> no. To weep with people, be there for people, hold people, just just be silent with people, right? And 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 then you know comfort people, encourage people. Yeah, so important. Other other thoughts on that, or, or Joe? Yeah, I don't know if this is necessarily an answer to what you're saying, but I think about the disciples. Um, like the, the, the very best friends that Jesus had while he was on earth, I mean, he looked them straight in the eye and said, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. <clears throat> so it's not like, I, I don't know why this is, but I know we can have these expectations like, you know, being good, so life should be good. Um, and the reality yeah. is that, that life is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of Jesus, I, I don't know how I could, could bear it. Even in Jesus, there's there's trials, there's tribulation. Um, he offered hope through, through heaven, through himself, through uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's talking to the disciples, looking at him in the eyes, know, knowing that, that Peter's going to be crucified upside down for him. Yeah. Uh, knowing that John was going to be exiled on Patmos. Right, um, right. Because of his faith in Jesus. Yes. And knowing, knowing the states of, of all the other, well, 11 at that, uh, 11 at that point, um, that even though they would serve him, they would be tortured, battered, beaten, and he still promised there will be joy. Yes. I would, I would give you joy. Mm-hmm. So, it's good. I would encourage you to, to look at Second Corinthians chapter four, verses fourteen and fifteen and sixteen. Or is it sixteen, seventeen, eighteen? I forget. But anyway, it's Paul says this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Every trial you face in this life, even the the biggest ones, the most painful ones, Paul would say that's momentary and that's light compared to the eternal weight of glory that you will experience in Christ forever. And that's why Paul says we don't lose heart. It's all centered on knowing Jesus Christ, beholding his glory forever. I mean, I, I'm going to see more of Jesus' glory forever having had this minor stroke, which is relatively small compared to what a lot of people experience. But that's true. Forever, I'm going to see more of Jesus' glory because of this light momentary affliction. It's producing for me an eternal weight of glory. That's a good thing doesn't mean I haven't wept over this and it hasn't been troubling for me and there may be more trouble to come. You know, we don't know. We're trusting the Lord. Okay? But it does mean that it is momentary, light affliction, which is producing for me something. Something's being produced. Every trial that comes your way is producing something. As you're looking to Jesus, as you're setting your eyes on the unseen things, Paul goes on to say, it's producing an eternal weight of glory. So if you know that it's producing an eternal weight of glory, then you're, you can be strong. It gives you hope. It gives you peace while you're weeping, while you're suffering. It'll give you strength. It'll give you confidence. It'll give you assurance. 
And I just want to point out the last verse in this eight verses. I think this is why he ends here. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You can see that's kind of a random verse. But think about it. Thousands of gold and silver pieces? I mean, a thousand one-ounce gold coins would be worth over a million dollars. And he's talking about thousands of gold and silver pieces. We're talking millions of dollars here. And so if you place before him the word and this pile of thousands of gold and silver pieces, and if you said, choose one, he would say, the word. I want the word. This is more precious to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Why? Why? It's because when I, when I walk in the word, when I seek God in the word, this is where I meet my Jesus. My Jesus meets me here. I see him. I behold him. He talks to me. He comforts me. He strengthens me. He gives me hope. He guides me. Mwah! Love the word. I'll take the word. And if trials bring me back to the word, you're good. And if trials teach me more of the word, you're good. Because in the word, I meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, that just may sound like words this morning. But what Joe said earlier is true. If you ask God to make that real to you, he will. If you want to, Meet the Lord in that way, in the word, so that you would say, the word of your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He will. He will do that for you. So ask him. Ask him. Jesus, I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling this verse, the last one that he writes in this section. Would you work in my heart? I promise you, he will. He will do that in you. He will do that in you. You'll experience that. So that's what I want to pray over me more and over all of us. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Amazing thing, Father, that this man who wrote this psalm, truly in his heart, your word was more precious to him than millions and millions of dollars. I pray that, Lord, for us that we would so love the truth of your word and so love you who wrote this word and so love you who meets us in this word through Jesus, that we would love your word more than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Please, Lord, come and do that in us. I pray that each of us would be praying for that and asking you for that and opening up the word and studying and thinking and worshiping and praying and beholding and meeting you in the word. And then, Lord, as we do that, that we would be able, when afflictions come, when afflictions come that wake us up that we've been astray and bring us back to your word, when afflictions come that teach us more of you in the word, we would say you have dealt well with your servant according to your word. Please, Lord, do that in us, I pray. God, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ, and 
experienced what it means to drink rivers of living water. I pray that today, Lord, they'd be saved. I pray that right now they'd be turning to you and saying, help me, I trust Jesus, save me, forgive me, pour out your spirit upon me, that you would do that so that they could see and taste what we've been talking about today. Do that, I pray, for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.